Hey, Melody, thank you. Uh, also, Hejman, thank you for inviting me and great to see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, Matt, I, I love you. And you know, Matt's a very good human being and we've grown up together in this program and it's just a pleasure to be an honorary Greenberg, honestly. Um, I do wanna welcome Lisa and Emily and Chris and Mark and Jay and say happy birthday to Scott. Um, I, I, I got a little distracted. My daughter walked in and gave me a hug. It's her 20th birthday today and my youngest and uh, she just got here and she just said, oh, is dad speaking? You, you know, she's just very accepting of this. In fact, this is a girl in her college entrance essay, she wrote, um, where some dads picked up um, their daughters at school and took them to tea parties. My dad picked me up and took me to the hospital to visit Liver Mike and ICU. <laughs> where some dads and moms had mother-in-law quarters above their garage. We had an Airstream trailer where people like Toothless Tim and a guy named Barnyard lived for <laughs> several months. And uh, I, I just, I was, I'm heartbroken that I'm not downstairs with my daughter. It's her 20th birthday, but she's so accepting and she'll wait for me to be done. And that's just a testament to this program. I do wanna say a little bit about my alcoholism for Lisa and Emily and Chris and Jay and Mark, because it's important that you trust me that I have alcoholism like you do. And you know, it, the slow progression of, of the ugly slow progression of alcoholism happened to me in about 10 years. I was, if I was, in, I didn't, when I was 20 years old in college, I played in a rock and roll band. I was getting two degrees. I was at the top of my class. If I was your boyfriend, I was loyal. I wrote songs for you. I, I was attentive. I was a great son to my mom and my dad. I kept in touch with them. I remembered their anniversary. I, I had brothers and sisters who were older than me, and, and I was very tight with my family. I was a really good employee. Everywhere I worked, I became the manager. Um, I just loved life. That was when I was 20. When I was 31 in May of 1993, uh, I had a girlfriend that was pregnant and I threw her down a flight of stairs when she was eight and a half months pregnant. I had a mother that was sick with uh, cancer and she lived two miles away and I didn't ever visit her. Uh, I was uh, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. I um, couldn't get a job. I drank myself out of a rock and roll career, a fairly middle-class rock and roll career and I drank myself out of that. And I was living in an apartment near the beach and I never went out and saw the ocean. I just hear it at night. And if, you know, Lisa and Jay and Emily and Mark and Chris, none of that is why I'm able to speak here tonight. That's just what the slow, ugly progression of alcoholism does. Alcoholism in my experience takes a little bite and I adjust down and then it takes a little bite. Maybe it takes some of my standards and I adjust down. Maybe it takes some of my honesty and I adjust down. Then it takes my character and I don't even notice it's gone. And I wake up in squalor. But what makes me, you know, the right person to be able to do this or one of the people that can do this at a meeting is even as the, the trouble got closer to the drink, you know, when I, I love my career playing music. And I'd be drinking and somebody would say, hey, you know, don't get on the bus, come hang out with us. And, you know, the, and I go, I shouldn't do that. I shouldn't go with the fun people, but I'd go with the fun people, you know, and the trouble between the drink and the trouble was quite a way. Sometimes it was a week, sometimes it was a month. But at the end, the drink and the trouble were interwoven. 
and with that pregnant girlfriend who was, you know, I, I didn't like, I didn't even like her. And I, I'm, I'm honest in AA because what would be the point of lying about who I was as an alcoholic? My mother, I did love and wanted to go see her and I couldn't do it. I kept, I kept saying I was going to not have a drink. I was all this tens of thousands of dollars in debt and I had people want, wanted to kill me and I had the police that wanted to arrest me. But what makes me an alcoholic is that I would wake up in the morning many months towards the end of my drinking and think, don't drink today. You know, go get a job today. Uh, take a shower, clean, wash your clothes, go see your mother, go see the parents of that teenage girl. The pregnant girl was 18 years old. I was 31. But what would happen for me, and, and I really understand the literature when it says alcoholism is partly an obsession of the mind. And what would happen for me is maybe that day I would take a shower. And taking a shower was like a big leap forward compared to what I'd been doing for the last couple of weeks, usually. And I'd be in the shower and that hot water would hit my face. And I'd think, you know, if you had two beers, you'd go see your mom. You wouldn't get drunk. It's two beers, but you'd probably feel calm enough to go see your mom. So I didn't want to go see my mom because I didn't know what lie I'd been telling her. I didn't know if she knew this girl was pregnant. I didn't know if they knew I was unemployed for seven months. I didn't know what they knew because I lied all the time. And I would think in the shower, I'll, I'll just have two beers and then I'll have enough courage to go see my mom and I'll be calm. And I, the obsession of the mind for me is once I think of alcohol in a positive light, I'm done. I, I know I'm done. I know I'm going to drink. And I'd go to the liquor store and think, well, if I get two beers, that's going to cost me this amount of money. But if I buy a bottle of gin, then I'll just have a shot of gin or a little drink of gin. Then there'll be alcohol when I get home. And that's why I'm here, because the trouble and the drink were one thing now. And I had no way out of my problems. I contemplated suicide all the time. I had a gun and I would put, I had this one bullet. It was a holotope bullet. It wasn't my gun. It was my roommates who had moved, but kept subletting his, he kept his apartment and his room. And I'd get his gun and I'd put that bullet in and I'd stick it in my mouth and stay awake at night and, and lean out the window and blow, I want to blow my brains out in the backyard. And I couldn't do it. I, I would just pray for courage. I, I didn't want to be a son this way. I could not be a father this way. I was, if I was your friend, I was a problem. And I used to be a decent man. I was raised by people who really loved each other. My mother and father were married to each other for 50 years. I had great examples. My brothers and sister were very kind to me. The reason I was a successful musician is my mother was sensitive to the temperament that I had. And she saw me in seventh or eighth grade and said, you don't get picked first for the team at school, do you, honey? I was a terrible athlete. I hated sports. I, I just didn't like them. And I said, no. And she said, do you want to play an instrument? She got me a guitar. I, I had everything. And I didn't want to hurt that girl when I threw her down those stairs. I just wanted her to get out of the doorway because she was telling me that I shouldn't drink that day. We had to go to the doctor and see about the pregnancy. So that's what I was like. You know, that's the slow, ugly progression of alcoholism. I had everything going for me. However, I have alcoholism throughout my family. Both my brothers are alcoholics. My uncles have died of alcoholism. My grandfather died of alcoholism after Bill Wilson tried to 12-step him. So I, my alcoholic, we're Irish Catholic, man. 
I'm screwed in both both senses, you know. And I and I grew up at the beach. I grew up in Redondo Beach at a Catholic school, which was the weirdest juxtaposition in the 1970s when girls' bathing suits were getting smaller and the nuns were still in those weird habits and telling me if I was even thinking about sex, I was going to hell. I gave up the fight, you know. When I was in eighth grade, I had all these hormones pumping through me and this ancient religion. And, and if anybody's ever seen the movie Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that was Cameron Crowe went to Redondo Union High to be undercover to write that movie. That was right across the street from my school. And they used to throw rocks at us Catholic kids in our uniforms. And I wasn't that dedicated to the religion, you know, but they were throwing rocks at me. I get to school, I could see the beach from my from our my classroom window. And I've got these nuns telling me I'm going to hell, you know. I didn't drink because my brothers were drinking and ruining my life, particularly one of them. But when I got to be 18 and I went off to college, man, the slow, ugly progression of alcoholism started. And that's, that's where I ended up. And the only reason, like I said, that I am qualified to speak here is because I drank when I didn't want to. I drank when I knew it was the wrong thing to do. And me all by myself for months at a time would say, don't do it. And then I do it over and over and over again. And when I read Bill's story, it doesn't matter that he fought in World War I. It doesn't matter that he was a, you know, an investment banker. I just see him drinking over and over and over again when he doesn't want to. You know, and that's, you know, that's the thing that happened to me in AA is I came in contact with people who did exactly the same insane thing I did, the fundamental thing. All of our stories look different. And what happened to me, and I, I wanna get to recovery, I don't wanna talk about this in depth, but what happened to me is I ruined Mother's Day. We thought it was my mom's last Mother's Day and I showed up, I'd been awake all night and I was hungover and belligerent and I, I don't know what I did, but I ruined my mother's Mother's Day and I loved and respected my mother. And my brother 12 stepped me that day. My brother who had ruined my teenage years was sober 12 years and he 12 stepped me on the beach in Redondo Beach. And he did it perfectly. In fact, somebody just sent me a photograph of the lifeguard stand he did it on. I'm gonna put it on my wall. It's the, the place where my life changed. And I went off to a rehab. I weighed 108 pounds. I weigh 170 pounds right now. I don't know how I lived. I drank gin all the time. I did whatever drug you had and could give okay. me. And I could, I, I just couldn't stop. And my brother 12 stepped me. And that was on Mother's Day, which was May 9th, 1993, um, that he 12 stepped me. And on May 16th, he was going to come pick me up to take me, uh, take me to rehab. And hey, Sue from New Zealand, we didn't welcome you as an out of towner. Um, and my brother, I, he said he was going to pick me up. So I stayed up all night drinking. I pawned my last guitar. I bought a bunch of booze. I don't think I had any drugs that night because I passed out. I, I hit my head on the wall on the way down and uh, kind of was leaning up against the wall when the phone rang and I thought it was my brother and it wasn't. It was the woman that said my daughter was born. And I, I don't want to tell you all about the, the rigmarole that I went to the wrong hospital. I went to, then I went to the right hospital then I couldn't find the room they were in. I'd been drinking and passed out in the middle of the night. I didn't plan on this. And honestly, I'd almost forgotten about it. And then when I got down to where they were, I walked into the room and I was confronted by a horror. And the horror for me was that they were beautiful. 
Anna, who I didn't like particularly, just had a baby. She had her hair matted to her face. Her body looked funky. Her neck kind of like she didn't have a neck all of a sudden. And she just was a mess. And she got up and started walking towards me. And she was just beautiful. I don't know how to describe it. She was just beautiful. I'd never seen anything like it. And it had nothing to do with how her physical appearance was. And then she handed me this baby, Phoebe Rose. And Phoebe Rose was stunning. And it was horror for me. I felt disgusting and disgusted. I couldn't be around them. I couldn't be anywhere near them. I would love, I would love so much because I get asked to tell the story so much to say, then I fell in love with my daughter and I had a moment of clarity and I knew I had to go recover. I didn't. I looked at those two people and they were so intimidating with their normalness and their loveliness that I decided I would shoot myself. And I got in my car and I raced home and I ran up my stairs and my brother was standing on my porch. And that's just grace, man. That's just grace. And he said, I packed your stuff, get in the car. And he wouldn't let me go in the apartment. And I have had so many moments of grace that have contributed to my recovery. And I, I think there's a formula for it. I really do. It's in the 12 steps. And I've read those steps over and over. Right now in COVID, I'm sponsored. I'm taking like five or six guys through the steps right now. And we get into the literature. And for me, in the last 27 years, what those steps have become is 12 surrenders. You know, I am in the bondage of self. And I, every one of those things is asking me to surrender something. My feeling of power, right? First thing I have to surrender is the, the lie that I'm powerful and that I'm going to manage my life. I don't manage my life. But I think that first surrender was when I said to my brother on the beach, I'll go to AA. And he said, no, you're going to a hospital. And I begrudgingly agreed. And seven days later, I had some grace. He blocked me from killing myself. And then I went off to this rehab and I don't remember much of it. I ate food finally. I slept at night finally. I went to some meetings and 30 days later, I got out and I thought, I'm never drinking again. I'm invincible. And if Lisa or Emily or Chris or Jay or Mark or anybody you didn't identify, if you've been in AA and gone out of AA, I, I know the feeling. I, I felt like when I got out of that hospital that I would never drink again. My best friends in the world were in rehab. I haven't seen one of them since at all their phone numbers. My brother drove me home and he told me to go to a meeting and I lied to him because I lie all the time back then. I lied so much. I didn't know what I had said to anybody, but I knew that day my brother said, go to a meeting. I said, of course, man, that's what I'm going to do. And I was not doing that. Not because I didn't want to be in recovery. I just thought he was a little intense. I just get out of a hospital. I want to go see my mother. I want to go see my daughter. I want to clean my apartment. I want to do my laundry. I want to figure out how to get a job. I'm not going to go to a meeting today. I've been in meetings for 30 days, but I lied. And I said, I'm going to a meeting. And I walked in my apartment. And there was a party in my apartment. And somebody handed me a beer. And there were girls in bikinis snorting cocaine off the glass table. And it was on. And I always went with the fun people, you know? I always did. And the distance between the drink and the trouble just got like paper thin. But I walked in that apartment, I looked around and in my head, out of nowhere, in my head, this thought occurs. And, and this is what I wanna to say to Mark and Chris and Lisa and Emily and Jay, is this thought came into my head and the thought was, man, you got nothing. 
You got nothing. You got no self-respect. You don't have any character. You have no prospects to ever make a good living. You owe so many people money. You're never going to pay them back. You got to deal with the courts and the taxes and all the people you burned. But you got 30 days. And this thought just came into my head. And the thought was very loud. And it said, do you want to throw away the one thing you've got on these losers again? And I don't know where that thought came from. I think that's called grace too. I meditate quite a bit. I'm very disciplined about it. And I know that thoughts just come and go. I didn't conjure that thought. Believe me, if I walk into a room and there's girls in bikinis snorting cocaine off the table, my table, and there's pot smoke in the kitchen, and I got a beer in my hand, I don't start thinking about my 30 days. But I had just enough grace. I had just enough recovery that that thought came into my head. I didn't have a connection with the higher power. I didn't have a foundation in the steps. It just came into my head and I ran out of my own apartment and I went to an AA meeting and inadvertently, I didn't lie to my brother. <laughs> I ended up in a meeting, you know, and I just think this kind of stuff happens all the time. I was just, my wife and I, my wife's British and we were watching an interview with this. this there was this old cooking show called Two Fat Ladies. And it's a great cooking show. And one of the ladies was being interviewed by a vicar tonight before I came up here. And she admitted she was an alcoholic. And she said, you know, once I decided to recover, all these things happened that I didn't expect. And I almost started crying. And I've heard that story for 27 years from all of you. But I know that. I know that that happens. And that's the thing about helping people in AA is they don't believe you understand. They think their problems are unique. You know, I sometimes try, you know, we talk about the 10,000 pound phone in AA. And that kind of makes me mad because the, the, the implication when I hear that at meetings in Southern California is I can't pick up the 10,000 pound phone. In fact, Scott talked about it. I'm a loner. I isolate. You know, I can't pick up the phone. And the implication is I should pick up the phone and not be a secret. I should pick up the phone and tell somebody what's really going on with me. You know, that's not why we're here. We're here because some guy picked up the phone when he was bankrupt and it just failed in business and he looked for someone to help. Please don't pick up the phone to dump your problems on somebody. If you got problems, find somebody with worse problems and help them. That's what's kept me sober and alive and spiritually awake and fulfilled and happy for 27 years. You know, I, I hear these guys, you know, I haven't, I haven't gotten a new car. I've been sober five years. I don't have the bitching job or the girlfriend. You know, Bill Wilson slept on people's couches for three years after he got sober. You know, it, it's just so funny how we look at this thing. With, with this, you know, like I think about this all the time lately. I can say unabashedly to people, I have had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. I have a tangible contact with God. I can, a conscious contact with what I call the timeless plentitude of being. That's what I call God. I can taste it. I can feel it. I can see it. I can hear it. I heard it tonight. Matt was, Matt was witness. You know, I, I see it, but you say that even the people in AA and they're kind of like, oh, that's a little heavy. That's a little weird, even in AA. But if I tell you, I got a cool job. I work at a fortune 500 company and I'm an executive. I fly all over the world. I have two cars in the garage. I have a bitchin' house. It's 100 years old. It overlooks 
the valley. I've got four beautiful children. My wife and I are madly in love and we've been married for 24 year, 25 years. You go, that's the gift of recovery. No, it's not. That's not the gift of recovery. That's the gift of not drinking. I guarantee you, if I just didn't drink for 27 years, I'd have a wife. Might be my fifth wife and not my first wife, but I'd have one. You know, I'd have a job because I tend to not get in my own way when I'm not drinking. That's just the gift of not drinking. The gift of recovery is I have spontaneous love for people that I don't even know. I go and do works in the prisons and the jails because I want to be free and rich and full of happiness and life. And I moved to Seattle, I couldn't connect. So I just go to the jails and the prisons and I never wanted to, and never wanted to go. I'd sign up and be excited. And then the day would come and I'd be like, I want to hang out with my wife. I love my wife. I want to play some of these guitars I can afford now. I want to play with my children, you know? And I'd go, it's Wednesday night. I got to go to the county jail. It's Friday night. I got to go to the women's prison. And I'd go there and something would happen. You know, there's mental illness in there. There's darkness in there. There's a heaviness in there. And I would, every single time I talked to probably at the jail, probably 200 guys, four 45 minute meetings. And I'd float home. I'd be exhausted, but I'd float home and I'd be caring about somebody that I didn't even know. I also have serenity in, in, in the face of calamity. Often I'm able to manage things that I don't, that's the gift of recovery. You know, when I was married for five years, my wife had a massive stroke, like not a friendly stroke that went away, like a stroke where she's effed up forever. Her left side is completely useless to her. She can't, uh, it's not reliable for taking care of anything of, of substance, but she's present, lovely. But I, I'm, I, I walked through that, never even once thought about a drink because I'm in AA. I do these 12 surrenders all the time. You know, that night that I went to that meeting and I left my apartment, I ended up moving in with my parents. And that night there was a guy speaking and I couldn't hear a word he said, man. Is that like Lisa and Jay and Emily and Chris and Mark, I bet you're hearing me go wah, 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 wah. <laughs> That's what I heard. And I'm sitting in there going, I'm screwed. I, this is it. This is the thing I got after my hospital is this is what's going to keep me alive. And the guy pointed to these steps and he said, these are tools for living. And I looked up at him. I have a degree in English literature and I have a degree in religious studies. And I looked at those steps and I, they didn't make any sense. They looked like they were in Chinese. Cause I was, my head was a, a buzz. It was like static electricity in my head all the time. I was screwed. And that night when I walked out of there I ended up through a series of events moving in with my parents that night. My mother's dying. My dad is retired and beside himself with sadness and fear that he's gonna lose her. So when I woke up the next day in that house, I didn't wanna be in there. I felt so self-conscious and awkward, the loser son, fresh out of rehab with a month old daughter across town that I ran out and asked my dad, if, I said, hey man, I got this meeting directory. There's a meeting at seven, can I borrow the car? And my dad said, hey, if there's a meeting, don't ask us, just take the car. Cause they'd seen my brother get sober. So I'd take the car just to get out of their house. And then I'd go to the meeting and forget how lame you guys were. You were so uncomfortable. You all laughed and everybody hugged everybody all the time. And I had one pair of shoes. 
I had one pair of top siders with acid from my car battery that burned through the shoes. And you guys look pretty good. And everybody seemed pretty comfortable. And I felt like a freaking alien. So I'd sit there for an hour. I don't know anybody. And then I go, okay, I got to get out of here. I can't take it anymore. And I go back to my parents' house, the uncomfortable place. And, I, and there's nothing wrong with my parents. Nothing at all. It was all me. And I'd spend the three hours in there and I couldn't take that. And I go, dad, there's a new meeting at the, the Hermosa Beach Alano Club. He go, just take the car. I go down there and I get freaked out by all of you. And, and I'm not exaggerating. Do you remember what it's like to meet us? It's not that great. <laughs> it's really weird, you know, but, but over time, the second step says we came to believe. We came to believe. It doesn't say our sponsor convinced us to believe or people shamed us into believing. It says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And I have had the privilege to watch that happen. I watched it happen to Matt. I've watched it happen to dozens and dozens of people. And normally when it happens, the person it's happening to doesn't even know it. And that's what happened to me. There was a day when I woke up and I went in and I tried to ask my mom if I could help her that day instead of dad. And I watched how lovely they were with each other. And I felt so comfortable and at peace with them. And then I went to the meeting because I wanted to get to the noon meeting at the Hermosa Beach Alano Club because there was this guy, Bill, there and he said outrageous opinions and he didn't give a damn and he chewed with his mouth open when he ate the cookies and he drank coffee like a pig and I couldn't wait to see him. I didn't even know it. I had come to believe nothing. You guys weren't uncomfortable. It wasn't uncomfortable at home. And so I just kept coming and I got a sponsor and my sponsor said, read this chapter, come to my house. We're going to read the book together. And, and I go to his house and we'd read it together. And he freaked me out. He freaked me out a lot of times when we got to the third step, which was, you know, pretty early. This guy had his little apartment with his, his girlfriend and he said, we're going to get on our knees and we're going to hold hands and I'm going to say this prayer and you're going to repeat it after me. And I'm like, no, we're not, you know, on this linoleum floor, no one's around. I'm like, I got Jeffrey Dahmer as my sponsor. I asked the wrong guy. I don't, I'm not digging this, you know, and we get down and we hold hands. I can't believe it. I'm And he's right here, you know, God, I offer myself to the God. I offer myself and I start doing it. And I get up and I didn't have some great awakening, but I felt a little lighter. And I think the reason I felt lighter, because nobody, you know, we ask a guy or a woman or a man, to, are you going to turn your will in your life over to the care of God? You're 60 days sober. What the hell does that mean? You know, like, even if you read every word in that the, between the steps and the third step, now we're at step three, it does, it's really, it makes no sense because you can't even fathom that that power is gonna catch you if you let go. But I got on my knees and prayed with this guy. And I got up and I felt a little lighter and I felt a little lighter because I did something I didn't wanna do that went contrary to my ego just to, to live a better life. And that was enough and I got a little lighter and I am a student of religion and there is a reason they call it enlightenment. We don't gather things for a spiritual awakening. We don't learn more. We get rid of stuff. And that's what happened to me in AA. That guy eventually said, now you're doing a four step. Now you're gonna prove you turned your will in your life over. 
And I did a four step and it was terrible. I didn't do it like he wrote out the columns. I didn't do that. I wrote a general confession. I went to Catholic school. I know what you're driving at. He listened to the whole damn thing. And then he said, that was awesome. It wasn't a four step, but it was awesome. And he made me do it again. And the first resentment on my, on my four step was him because I couldn't believe he listened to that whole hour of me sobbing and telling my darkest secrets and said, that isn't what I asked you to do. I asked you to write a name, what happened, how it made you feel, and what was your fault and mistake. And when I did it the way he told me, again, went against my own better judgment because I needed to change, I had a different experience. And during this time, I started paying child support. You know, I just never went to court. I went over to Anna's every two weeks and gave her part of my check. And I, and I part, she asked me for a certain percentage and it was very fair and I didn't make any money. My first year of sobriety, I had a number of jobs. I worked at a gas dock in a harbor sometimes. I worked at a newspaper from midnight to four in the morning, stacking newspapers on a dot loading dock. Uh, I drove, I delivered packages for a subcontractor for my brother's company. I have two degrees and I graduated at the top of my class with honors. And I didn't think those jobs were beneath me, man. I just wanted somewhere to go and not think. I smoked cigarettes like a fiend. I said the serenity prayer every break I had. I, when I was 90 days sober, I got pulled over on the way home from a meeting. Uh, I had, my car was smoking the tailpipe because some old friend of mine was putting sugar in the gas tank. I didn't know who, I didn't know why. I never saw it, but I'd start the car and all the smoke. I was speeding a little, not too much. And I got pulled over and this cop said, can I see your license and registration? And I said, I got 90 days, man, today, an Alcoholics Anonymous. And I handed him my coin and he didn't take it. He said, can I see your license and your registration? And I looked around and I didn't, I don't know where the registration was. I didn't have proof of insurance. I pulled out my driver's license that had been expired for four years. I just hadn't looked at it for a while. And I hand it to him and he looks at it and I go, hey man, I just got 90 days in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, hold on a minute. And he went back to his car. And then he came and he, he said, can you please step out of the car? And I go, I got 90 days. <laughs> hey, hey man, I'm really trying my best. And he said, welcome to your past, Mr. Mitchell. Turn around and put your hands behind your back because I had warrants out for my arrest, right? Now, it was humiliating being arrested on the side of the road. My parents were out of town that weekend, so I, no one bailed me out. I went and spent the weekend in jail. And I've been in jail drunk. It's so much better than jail sober. <laughs> like you just sort of have an apathy about all the craziness when you're drunk, you're like, whatever. It's just part of the, it's the after party, right? <laughs> Is at jail. But this is the time in early 90s, man. AIDS was a real thing. And I was lying in this bunk and this guy was punching the wall above me and his blood was spattering all over my face. And I'm laying there saying the serenity prayer. On Monday morning, they're going to take me out to court. And the guy chained to me, no lie, reaches into his, his underwear and pulls out crack and smokes crack chained to me before we went out this is early sobriety just letting you know mark and jay and chris and emily and lisa this is what my first year was like and i i go he's smoking crack i'm praying the serenity prayer which feels like i'm bringing a noodle to a knife fight you know i'm like 
I hope this thing works, man, because I it does it. I don't get this. And I walk out, and my brother's standing out there, and, and the the girl I had the baby with, Anna, and she starts crying, and he bursts out laughing, <laughs> and he bails me out of jail, and he made me paint his whole house, his whole house, for the bail, and he told me after I was done that the bail was two hundred dollars. So I painted his whole house for, <laughs> to pay off two hundred dollars. I I when I got home that day to my house, the phone rang and it was this guy. He said, this is officer Sabosky from the Redonda beach police department. And I said, Jesus, man, what now? And he goes, I'm just messing with you. It's your sponsor. And I said, I just got out of jail. And he goes, I know. And I go, how'd you know? And he said, I drove by while you were getting arrested. <laughs> you know, he was going home from the meeting. And I said, well, I'm going to go to bed. I haven't slept for a few days. He goes, no, you got to go. It's Monday night. You're going to go to the meeting. I go, I'm not going to that meeting, man. And he goes, yeah, you're going to go to the meeting and you're going to share what happened to you. And I said, no, I'm not. You know, because I, I figured 90 days, I can have a kind of a good reputation at AA now. <laughs> and he says, no, you're going to go. And I said, I'm not. And he goes, then get another sponsor. And he hung up, you know, and I'd already held hands on the kitchen with him. I didn't want to do that again with somebody else. I wasn't going there. So I, I went to the meeting and I was exhausted and I was pissed and I didn't want to be there. And my sponsor called, made them call on me and I didn't want to share what happened. And I just, I was so embarrassed and I told everybody what happened. And people just looked, a couple of people laughed and then they called on somebody else. They said, yeah, man, that happened to me, but I was sober when I committed the crime. Or that happened to me and my wife wouldn't bail me out. I'd only was sober six months and she thought I did something bad. And I experienced spiritual love, spiritual empathy, trans, transparency, vulnerability, kindness, lack of ego among men. I had been to Buddhist monasteries to study Zen. I had been to the seminary to study the Catholic religion. And I'd never seen anything like I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. They just told me just like they were, I'm like they are. And I started really liking being me. You know, I'm paying this child support to Phoebe, for Phoebe. And I go over to their house, to the Anna's house, and they're going to go off, you know, to college. With Anna's going to college, it's embarrassing that my, the mother of my daughter was young enough to be headed to college when I was 31 in AA. And she was going off to Chico. We weren't together. And I'm playing with Phoebe because I just brought a child support check. So I felt like I wasn't a loser. I could come in the house of her parents. And I'm talking to Phoebe, you know, she just won. And I'm telling her, baby, I love you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to buy you a car when you're 16. I'm going to take you to your first day of school every year, I promise. You know, and, if, and I'm going to pay for college. I didn't even have a car <laughs> when I told her I was going to buy her a car. My car died from sugar in the gas tank. I just borrowed cars. I rode my bike to the to the newspaper at night. and I'm, But I'm making all these promises because I'm so excited that I'm going to see the whole unfolding of Phoebe. You know, and a year before that, I met Phoebe and decided to blow my head off. That was what I really thought was the right thing to do. And I came to AA and you didn't care what I thought. And I think a lot and I read a lot and I want to argue or be intellectual about things. All my sponsor and the men around me cared about was what did I do? And all I did was bring that check every two weeks. And as I got raises, they got raises and I paid child support and I 
realized what was right in front of me, just like I did with my parents living at their house. I realized what was right in front of me, beautiful love, beautiful love. And I was afraid of it and ashamed being around it until I came to believe. And when I was with Phoebe for that year, I said all that stuff. They went off to college. I flew up and visited them. I had no money. I'd scrape together money, fly up, get a ride. I used to have friends up there in Northern California. And you know what I did? I took her to her first day of school every year, kindergarten, first grade, every year. I bought her a car when she was 16 and she wrecked it two weeks later. I haven't bought her a car since, but I also did pay for college. I just, I finished paying for nursing school last year and my daughter, Phoebe, is up in Portland on the front lines of this COVID thing. She is a hero. She is a quiet contributor with brilliance and kindness and intelligence. Now I used to say that Phoebe got sober, Phoebe got, was born to get me sober. And you know what that is? That's alcoholic self-obsession, <laughs> that's self-centeredness. Phoebe was born to be a force on earth. I got slapped with grace and I got to be a witness and a part of it. And we are very close. We talk almost every day right now. She's going through it. And when I, this, you know, matching calamity with serenity, when my wife had that stroke, we had a one-year-old and a four-year-old and Phoebe was seven and life changed forever. And a lot of guys showed up, Matt sitting outside by a fire with his wife right now. And he said, this is like your old meeting. Well, that meeting in my backyard is because Erwin F brought me a meeting when I was coming home at night from the hospital thinking my wife is going to die. And they'd be sitting out there in my backyard, you know, and after that meeting went by for a year and we kind of got on our feet, I told everybody they didn't have to come. I wrote little notes and big books. I handed it out to the regulars that were still showing up. I remember Tom S said, dude, this meeting isn't about you anymore. And they came back. That meeting officially ended when I moved to Seattle. That was like 10 years later. You know, they just kept coming. But I want to read something to you, and I don't do this very often, but I told you about my daughter's essay to get into college about Liver Mike at ICU and Toothless Tim and Barnyard living in my trailer. Well, my son sent this to me and he said, can you proofread this? He, was, he got into UW with this essay. As a child, it's hard to understand why systems sometimes fail or break. As a child, it's hard to understand why your parents stopped laughing. Shortly after the birth of my younger sister, my mother suffered from a severe stroke caused by a weak artery in her neck. After this, things were different. My mother walked with a limp and had trouble reading books to us. My father walked like a ghost and forgot how to warmly hold his two small children the way he once did regularly. I firmly believe that every time life pulls the earth from under your feet, it sends a rope in after you. After my mother's stroke, friends and my father would come over during the week to help us out. And every Sunday night, they would have a men's AA meeting in the backyard. As a child, they became my family. They slowly brought laughter and love back to the house that had become so cold. They were men. So anyway, as a child, they became my family. They slowly brought laughter and love back into the house that had become so cold. They were the men and women of Alcoholics Anonymous, and they never left us. They gave me the right questions to ask of life and practical advice on how to navigate my way through. 
They taught me that everybody is trying their best. So we must always be kind, honest, and forgiving. And their words have served me over and over again in my life. I didn't even know that that was his experience till he wrote that essay for college. He was four years old when my wife had a stroke. And I'll tell you, man, we're content. Come to our house, see how we live. Matt knows, Laura knows, we really love each other. And I, you know, I'm a shallow man. I married my wife because she looked like Audrey Hepburn. She had a British accent and we were the same speed. You know, we were like both the same speed. We just very comfortable around each other. She was so hot, you know, and then she had a stroke. My wife's gained 75 pounds. Sometimes she doesn't make sense. If she has a couple glasses of wine, she's not an alcoholic. She's got so much damage in her brain. She can have a seizure. She just says stuff that doesn't make any sense. But I found something here that I didn't know I had. I have depth. I have a spaciousness inside me that makes room to accept things that I don't understand. I have all these people I can talk to. I have principles and I live them. I don't have any secrets. Everything I've ever done, somebody knows about. And I don't know how I got here, except I did these 12 surrenders. You know, the six and the seven step, and I'll wrap up in just a second. The six and the seven step are funny steps when you start out. Because there is that, hey, you know, are you willing to let go of it? You know, I remember I was reading this step with a guy and he said, I'm not giving up porn. <laughs> and I started laughing. I go, does it say here you have to give up porn? And he goes, I see where this is headed. <laughs> and I said, I think what it's saying is try to imagine a life where you don't need that anymore. Try to picture what it would be like to not have a crutch like that or to not have some drug like that. And now, 27 years later, I'm 58 years old. I've raised all my children. You know, my last two, I adopted one. So I have two 20-year-olds. They're in school now. You know, my boy's up in, in Washington. And I, I, I look at my character defects like, please remove them. I don't want to hold on to them at all. I like being close to the timeless plenitude of being. You know, the seven deadly sins are kind of a mis misunderstood you know this this guy Evagoras Ponticus a desert father a first century Christian meditated and meditated and meditated on what made him feel far away from God and he came up with that list what blocks him and then it became this thing adopted by the church and they were the seven deadly sins but one of my heroes Sandy Beach said there's seven things that keep you out of the present moment greed lust gluttony sloth they keep you away from what's right here and right now and i'll tell you when you love someone as much as i love my wife and they have brain damage you understand powerlessness it should you might have children you'll understand powerlessness have a career you'll understand powerlessness fall madly in love like i have and you'll understand powerlessness but what i found out from my wife and she teaches me all the time is sometimes I do go to the past and think, why can't it be like it was? And sometimes I get into the future, like, is it ever going to get better? And then she snaps her fingers. She does something funny. Or she, you know, we got these electric tricycles, got her an electric tricycle. She want to go for a bike ride. And she just pulls me into the present moment. And that's where God lives.
always never can live anywhere else. It's impossible. And I get there. And you know, you do that for me. I don't want to pick up the phone sometimes. I'm tired of you. I'm tired of AA sometimes. I'm tired. I work hard. I have children that tax me. I have a life that taxes me. And then I'll pick up the phone and some guy's ass will be falling off or he's like, dude, I don't know what I'm going to do. My relationship's a mess or dude, I don't know what I'm going to do. I hate my job or I think I'm going to drink or I, I haven't told you the truth about something. And I go right in the present moment and I become connected to something way bigger than me. Way bigger than me. And it gives me relief and pleasure and joy and richness. And it's been a real pleasure sharing with you tonight. I'm sorry about 